Hello, folks. Welcome to the seventh episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the sociocultural, historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of cultures. Today, we'll be looking at a myth called the Fox Outwitted from the land of Scotland. So join me today on a journey into the past and the present a voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. Like our previous episodes, we once again need to do a little bit of a history lesson before we can actually tell the story. As time goes on, these history lessons will get smaller and I will redirect you to previous episodes, but these first few episodes, uh, probably the first 30 or so, will be pretty heavy on history, so do be aware of that. So this myth is from Scotland, which is of course, the northern part of the UK, or United Kingdom these days. It has a long, long history, recorded and archaeological, so this, this will be a very long history lesson. I will try to make it as brief as possible, but there are a lot of different things that happened in Scotland that we have recorded, and a lot of them are pretty interesting. Uh, it's a very conflict-heavy area, and conflict tends to lead to re recordings of things, is, is what I've noticed. That's a trend. We, you'll pick up on that over time. You know, there's a reason that recordings of myths oftentimes first originate right after colonization, which is a time of conflict. So, in Scotland, the first archaeological evidence of people living there appears in 12,000 BCE. That is 14,000 years ago. There were people there for a long time, mostly hunters and gatherers, but eventually agriculture developed. And we have our first example of that in 3,500 BCE, which was around the time that a lot of other civilizations were starting to develop this technology. They were likely interacting with others living in the British Isles and maybe even uh, Ireland. There were cairn tombs, which were developed as the preferred burial method around this time, as well as standing stones having been built from about 3,100 BCE and onwards until around 2,000 BCE, which is when the Bronze Age uh, occurs. There's a lot of these hill forts that appear in uh, England and Scotland at this time, which were small forts meant to control small regions. They, they were not like castles as we think of them now. They weren't towers that would all come later. And until the Roman invasion, we don't really know what was going on there. That's why we assume these hill forts were only more local territorial disputes and not something larger going on. However, we really have no way of knowing. 
There were, of course, many towers and villages that we have in the archaeological record, which suggests the presence of many different feuding hierarchies and rulers. As I said, local territorial disputes seem to be the primary form of conflict prior to the invasion by Rome. So the Romans briefly entered Scotland, but were repelled by the horrific weather over the course of a number of years. And the Romans called the region Caledonia, and they called the people there Caledonians, which the name stuck to a certain extent, and different people have talked about Scotland as Caledonia or uh, the southern region of it as Caledonia for a long time, even though that's not what the Scottish ever called that region. Claudius Ptolemy wrote geography in 150 CE, and uh, he described 18 distinct tribes, though even he admitted that his understanding of the north and west of Scotland was extremely limited, meaning that the entire work is basically useless. The invasion of Scotland was launched by a governor named of Quintus Patilius Serialis and began in 71 CE. The Romans took the lowland regions by 84 CE, and this is where they would primarily set up their bases, set up their forts, their military presence for the, the entirety of their invasion. And these were the Brionic tribes who also interacted with Ireland and a whole, whole bunch of other people, England. But these Brionic peoples were the main peoples who the Romans colonized. They had trouble pushing into the upland region, however, and were mostly dispirited by the weather and pretty harsh conditions. And so they withdrew from Scotland to what would become Hadrian's Wall in northern England. Now, 84 CE was not the last time that they would invade. In 141 CE, the Romans pushed into southern Scotland and built the Antonine Wall. Septimius Severus launched multiple campaigns into even the north of Scotland in 209 CE, and after Severus's death, the Romans returned to Hadrian's Wall probably because there weren't very many resources in the north of Scotland, and so they let those people just kind of hang out and do their own thing. This mirrors the way in which the Spanish let the Miche people primarily do their own thing, once again in a mountainous region. We'll probably see this in other cultures. I would, I would wager. I'm not sure about that, but it seems to be a repetition. So after the Romans leave, there are a few different groups, uh, four primarily, who inhabit Scotland and are vying for power. These include the Picts in the east, the Dalriada in the west, who were related to the Irish and used a Gaelic language, which is what we know today as Scottish Gaelic. Fortrue in the north, and the British kingdom of Strathclyde in the, in the south. And those were the people who were most influenced by the Romans. Really all of the Brits, the Britons, were very much influenced by Rome. They are those Brionic tribes that I mentioned. So from 400 to 600, Christianization occurs due to Irish figures like St. Columba who came over from Ireland and brought, brought their version of Celtic Christianity to Scotland. This is quite different from the Roman Catholic traditions. Abbots were some of the more powerful individuals in the church instead of bishops, and women could be in pretty powerful positions within the church, uh, such as being an abbot. 
Furthermore, celibacy was less stressed for religious devotees, and uh, priests were allowed to marry. So much, much more liberal than the Roman Catholic Church. So the Pictish and Gaelic sects joined together during this Christianization, likely because of the mass movement of words and stories. They saw how things were going, and they found that they could still worship their holidays and perhaps some of their gods within the context of Celtic Christianity. This was what also occurred in Ireland. It's why Christianity was so popular in this region, mostly because there was not, there weren't very many people keeping the order precise. And so that allowed for a lot of freedom in religion. Now in 867 CE, the Norse invade and take the southern part of Northumbria pretty easily. Uh, they swiftly take the north as well, leading to the formation of the Kingdom of Alba, Scotia, or Scotland, which was used as the name for the northern section and remained for perpetuity. In 900 CE, Constantine II ruled until 943. He was a lot more stable than his successors who traded the rule between different regions via a series of wars. Eventually, Macbeth, who is the most famous Scottish monarch uh, in the modern day, took the crown in 1040 and ruled for 17 years. From here on out, there's a lot of different rulers, so I'm going to try to move through it quickly. Bear with me as there is a lot of motion and movement. Melchorim III ceded Scotland to William the Conqueror and allowed the English in close to 1290 CE. It was unclear who was meant to be the ruler of Scotland, and so they asked Edward I of England to arbitrate. This gave the English king an excuse to invade, leading to the invasion of 1296 when King John I was deposed from the throne of Scotland. William Wallace and Andrew de Moray raised troops to resist the English invasion. Wallace was publicly, publicly executed in 1305, which you might be familiar with Braveheart. That is that story. I believe that's where it ends. Robert the Bruce takes up the mantle of the guardian of the realm in 1306, directly after this execution, and eventually defeats King Edward I and the Second's armies by 1314. The 1400s were relatively calm, mostly just small snafus between monarchs. The Orkney Islands and Shetland Islands were ceded to Scotland in 1468 due to a marriage to a Danish princess. Higher education in Scotland developed as well, which led to the Renaissance period in Scotland with a lot of different philosophical figures that would arise at this time. England invaded again in 1512 and took Scotland in 1513. James V was an infant who acted as a puppet ruler until he was old enough to gain custody and repel the regent's orders. He attempted to repel the English, but failed. In 1554, the French took over the regency, and the Scottish Reformation occurred a few years afterward outlawing the mass and implementing Protestantism as the primary religion. In 1603, King James VI of Scotland was the heir to the English throne. And so King James VI also gained the Irish throne and through another series of, of happenings <laughs> and sent an estimated 50,000 Scots to live in Ulster. Now this is, of course, if you know where Ulster is, it's in Northern Ireland and it's where, it's where a lot of my ancestors are from, uh, well, some of them, 
and this was a cause for a lot of dismay for the people of Ireland, and it was very much seen as part of English colonization and was considered an act of aggression, essentially, against the culture of Ireland. So this is some of the reason for the Troubles, historically, uh, was this movement, mass movement of 50,000 people to live in a different region. So, you know, when we talk about Israel and Palestine in the modern day, think about this, right? Think about the way in which just moving a group of people can be really, really detrimental. In the case of Israel and Palestine, I personally stand with Palestine in that I do not think a people should have to move out of the houses that they inhabit to allow people who did not originally live there, who are not from that culture, to move in. I think that if you live in a place, you should be allowed to continue to live in that place if you want to. I am, of course, through a series of inferences, you can determine that I am against the expansion of Israel into the West Bank. And I am personally, though a Jew, an anti-Zionist. I don't think that the concept of Zion is a real thing. I believe that Israel is simply a country, not a holy land, right? And the holy land is in all of us, is it not? Are we not all representations of the whole world? Our holy land is our heart, our soul. I can be a Jew anywhere. I don't, I don't need Israel. I don't know. I, I, I have a lot of opinions about that, and we'll get to those eventually. But back to Scotland. Charles I, who was the son of James VI, continued the Anglicization of Scotland and Ireland, which was pretty largely unpopular, and led to a revolt in both Scotland and Ireland. In 1640 to 1650, it was the War of the Three Kingdoms, or the English Civil War. Eventually, Oliver Cromwell invaded Scotland in 1650, and all of this eventually led to Scotland becoming part of the United Kingdom and having, to some extent, a similar culture to English people today because of migration between the areas and, honestly, just apathy. It takes a lot to continuously revolt against people who want to come in and control your lives. And so a lot of Scottish people were just like, this is... We're done. It's been a long time. There's a lot of conflict here. Our myth today is called The Fox Outwitted and is very short, so I might tell it a couple times so that we can get an understanding of the myth and perhaps use this historical information to better make sense of it. One day, the fox succeeded in catching a fine fat goose asleep by the side of a lock. He held her by the wing and making a joke of her cackling, hissing, and fears, he said, Now, if you had me in your mouth as I have you, tell me what would you do? Why, said the goose, that is an easy question. I would fold my hands, shut my eyes, say a grace, and then eat you. 
Just what I mean to do, said the fox, and folding his little hands and looking very demure, he said a pious grace with his eyes shut. But while he did this, the goose had spread her wings, and she was now halfway over the lock, so the fox was left to lick his lips for supper. I will make a rule of this, he said in disgust. Never in all my life to say a grace again till after I feel the meat warm in me belly. And that's the myth. Sometimes myths are really short, right? We've had a few short myths in the last few episodes. And this myth, I think, can be read two main ways. The first is as a little humorous, ha-ha, kind of story. It's just fun. And that is more of a Christian understanding, right? If we, if we don't look at the religious overtones that are going on in this myth. It's to some extent a moral, right? Don't, or a fable, don't let your, don't, don't count your blessings until you've got the meal in your mouth. You might go starving if you don't, if you don't eat when it's right in front of you. In that way, it's ideological. It's saying, are you in famine? Eat. <laughs> eat if you have it. It's important. Now, of course, that's not always true. But in this case, I think it's, to some extent saying that. But to me, the religious overtones are pretty apparent here. This myth, to me, says a lot more about Christianity than anything else, right? Because this practice of saying grace is a very Christian thing, right? Say grace, specifically. Hands together. It's very clearly commenting on the practices of Christianity. And it's actually these practices that make the fox lose the goose. So why would that be? Well, I see it as perhaps somebody who was perhaps being Christianized at this time decided uh, maybe this is not the best idea and not being able to say this directly, decided to put it into a myth, a story, and decided to say, well, what is, what is making it difficult for us to eat these days? Well, I, I think that it makes it very difficult for us to eat when we're Christian because we constantly have to be pious. We have to fold our hands. We have to stop looking at the outside world, close our eyes. There is an overtone here that Christianity or religion in general can make you dull to the world, make you forget your own worldly needs. You know, just because you think of God all the time doesn't mean that you can eat. <laughs> You have to eat first before you think of God. And a, a Christian might hear that and say, oh my God, that's blasphemous. <laughs> oh no, they use God's name in the wrong way. <laughs> you know, truly, that is how it is sometimes. And to not speak about that, I think, is more blasphemous than speaking about it. Yes, the fox, the fox is very much the point of view character here as well. There is something kind of fun seeing the goose be able to get away. Our interest is, is with the fox, one day the fox, and that's, that's the start of it, right? And we're left with the fox at the end. The goose is a, is a, is a momentary passers-by, the meal. We are the fox in this case. We're the people who are getting kind of tricked because the goose, oh, <laughs> oh, wait a second. The goose is one that flies, one that flies bringing grace bringing Christianity. It is also one who's not too scraggly. The fox almost puts on this demure look, right? Whereas the goose flies away in a, in a very beautiful way always. You know, the fox is not necessarily very pious, <laughs> but he is tricked into doing so by the goose. 
because the goose, well, but also the fox is asking. <laughs> yeah, why does the, the fox ask? Hmm. Oh, he was making a joke of her cackling, hissing, and fears. Ah, I see. He's trying to say, like, oh, what would you do? Just cackle, hiss, and fear? What would you do? And the goose is like, no, nah, I'd just, like, sit there and chill. If, if I had you in my mouth. Yeah, that's what the fox does. Let's, let's read it one more time so we can get a real good sense of what's going on here. One day, the fox succeeded in catching a fine, fat goose asleep by the side of a lock. He held her by the wing, and making a joke of her cackling, hissing, and fears, he said, No, if you had me in your mouth as I have you, tell me what would you do? Why, said the goose, that is an easy question. I would fold my hands, shut my eyes, say a grace, and then eat you. Just what I mean to do, said the fox, and folding his hands and looking very demure, he said a pious grace with his eyes shut. But while he did this, the goose had spread her wings, and she was now halfway over the lock. So the fox was left to lick his lips for supper. I will make a rule of this, he said in disgust, never in all my life to say a grace again till after I feel the meat warm in my belly. Going with this concept of Christianity being at the center of the, of the myth, the fox does not necessarily say that Christianity bad, just that the placing of it before other things that are needed for life might be a bad idea. Because when you're in the throes of catching a goose, my, you cannot stop for a prayer. <laughs> Perhaps a short one in your head, but you cannot stop for a prayer when you are, when you are grabbing a goose. <laughs> it's, it's a comment about the practicality of religion and when religion is practical to be used. And perhaps it's a, it's a statement directly about Christianity, but not, not necessarily. It could be about religion more generally, or it could be about Christianity directly. Because most religions do have some moment of saying grace. They might not call it saying grace, but it's like uh, bringing people into communion with each other. That's very common across a lot of different cultures. There's also a dichotomy set up within the story of the fox and the goose. The fox being this lithe, uh, cunning uh, animal, and the goose being fine and fat, defined as, as, to some extent, privileged, just to sleep. The fox has already won, in a way, at the, at the beginning, has already found the goose asleep, and is about to kill the goose. But the privileged always have a way of talking their way out of something when things don't go their way, when they are snuck up upon. Would the fox have such a recourse? Perhaps. But the fox goes hungry today. And it seems every day the fox goes hungry. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you for tuning in. You can support the show and my work by continuing to listen, following the show wherever you get your podcasts, and engaging in discussion within the comments. Along with this podcast, I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocane.com. That's www.echocain.com. Next episode, we'll be exploring 
the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, the last part of the Mahabharata, a very, very long text from Vedic India. Get really excited for that one. It will be a multi-part series. We will be covering the Bhagavad Gita in a number of parts, and much later, the entire Mahabharata in a much, much greater number of parts. So get excited for all of that. Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and now for the last word. Today's last word is communion. Communion.